Some of you may know that today in the United States is July 4th. Of course, we in New Zealand are a little ahead of the United States. Oh, it's not no longer the 4th here, but July 4th is a big day in the United States. It's a public holiday. Some of you may not understand why it's so it's such a big day, at least to the Americans. So uh, some of you quite know that uh, on that picture on the slide there, you have the Statue of Liberty, which was given to the United States by France. Statue of Liberty is uh, located in uh, New York City. And now often there's uh, big celebrations all around the country, fireworks, as you see in the, in the picture there, and, of course, lots of red, white, and blue stuff. And I found it quite interesting that uh, the warehouse here in New Zealand was, was selling a lot of red, white, and blue stuff this <laughs> last week. Uh, some American stuff, you, candies and fizzy drinks and all various plates and cups and so forth. Uh, so I found that quite interesting. Never seen that before. That uh, here we are, here we are in New Zealand. July 4th does really a non-event here, but yet uh, here warehouse is caught on and trying to market this and sell stuff. But it's, it's a big deal in the United States because way back in 1776, there were some uh, representatives uh, that represented the, the colonies at that time. They signed this, uh, this right here, which was called the Declaration of Independence. You can, as you read this, uh, it says that in Congress, July 4, 1776, a declaration about the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled. And then they wrote some various things, and these guys signed it. And by the way, most of those guys died and had their lands confiscated by the British and uh, family members killed and executed. And the British were quite nasty, I must say very nasty to particularly the signers of the Declaration of Independence as well as uh, the common citizen. But uh, it, was a, it was a big thing, declaring independence from Mother England. They didn't want to be palms. They didn't want to be prisoners of Mother England. And uh, partly to blame for that, mainly to blame for that, would be the King of England who decided, well, we're going to go ahead and tax these these colonists, these so-called citizens of England, and we're not going to give them any representation in Parliament. That really made them angry. And so there was a lot of people who thought, well, we need to be free. We need to be at liberty, be our own country. So words like freedom and liberty became big words. And it's interesting that even as you read this, by the way, the Fs are actually the letter S. So they, they used to write the letter S as Fs. But it's interesting as you read this because it says that we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator, capital C, Creator, with certain unalienable rights. That among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) It's pursuit of happiness. But notice one of those things they mentioned was liberty. And where does that come from? They acknowledged it comes from the Creator, who, of course, is God, Yahweh. So freedom and liberty are big, important things, concepts, beliefs. They're fantastic words. And it's interesting that uh, here's people who think in the physical realm this is important, but even more so in the spiritual realm, freedom and liberty are very important. You'll see in this slide here, some shackles coming off somebody, walking away from these shackles that were binding them, keeping them in slavery. And we we should thank God, if you're a believer today in Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ has granted you freedom. He has given you liberty. In Jesus Christ, there is liberty. Most importantly, by the way, Christians are freed from the penalty of sin. We are freed from spiritual death and the eternal condemnation that comes with that. But as Christians, we're also free from something else. You can thank God that you don't have to live under the Old Testament system anymore. You read books in your Bible like Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy and so forth, you'll see the Old Testament ceremonial laws and all the dietary restrictions that God had put on His people Israel. 
Well, thank God we've been freed from that. We've been freed from all those ceremonial laws and dietary restrictions. And I'm thankful I can eat pork. Because <laughs> bacon is yummy. It is. Bacon's yummy. You know, Israel couldn't eat that, that stuff originally. God set us free. And so even though we're permitted to enjoy this freedom, we're not commanded to do so. Did you know that? We're not obligated to exercise every freedom we have in Christ. There's a, a pendulum swing you need to be aware of here when it comes to our liberty and freedom in Christ. Some people go way over here, and it's called antinomianism, anti-law, or hyper-grace, as <laughs> I heard this weekend. Right? And then, then we'll, we'll talk about that one uh, next week, or what, what we might call liber- uh, the, the libertine. How does a libertine live? But then you get the other extreme, you know, the, the, the legalist, if you will. We're going to talk about that one today. So there's, sadly, always seems to be pendulum swings when it comes to these things. But we're not obligated to exercise every freedom that we have in Christ. Paul talks about that in places like Romans 14 here. In fact, the Bible says the, the greater our love, the greater we are growing in Christ, or the greater our spiritual maturity is, the less important freedom is to us. And, and the more willing that you and I are going to be to relinquish those freedoms for the sake of other people, especially other believers. So the issue, the issue at stake here is the, the mature Christian is, is what, are, what are they going to do with this freedom in Christ? How are they going to exercise this freedom and this liberty? Good question. Well, you'll see in this next slide on the, on the screen here that a lot of people uh, in churches uh, are this way. They, there's faithful believers, probably in every church, whose consciences don't allow them to participate in things and activities. They, the conscience just prohibits them from going certain places and doing certain things, and so they've, they've got this struggle between what's unlawful and what liberty do I have in Christ. And it, it is important to, to look at the Bible and, and see what the Bible says in, in relation to these things. Some Christians can do things where you may not be able to. Maybe you can do things where other Christians can't. Okay, the Bible addresses these things. And so when a strong believer loves their brother and sister in Christ, that hopefully the desire is to build close relationships, even though you may not see eye to eye in everything. And so then in the process, a church can be strengthened, a church can be unified, even when you don't see eye to eye on everything. And so in that loving environment, then someone who is a legalist can be helped by someone who is stronger, someone who is more mature in Christ. You might ask this question here, who is a legalist then? Who is a legalist? Well, I'll, I'll define that in a moment, but let's look at the scriptures here in Romans 14. Remember the context, Paul's addressing uh, the issue of, well, what do you do when meat's been offered to an idol? Is it okay to eat meat that's been offered to an idol? This is an example of a gray area. It's not black, it's not white, it's not obvious, it's not a clear command of God. God doesn't you know, come right out and address everything that we deal with. Okay, There are issues, lots and lots of issues of life that would be gray areas. God doesn't specifically spell it out for you what to do, and so you have to use discernment. Use the biblical principles in the Bible. So with that in mind, <clears throat> let's, see, let's read together Romans 14. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. These are the words of the living God. And he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? That's a good example there, by the way. Those questions are a good example of a legalist. All right? Really describing a legalist here. Someone who's despising their brother, passing judgment on their brother here. So look what God says. There in verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, 
because of what we just read. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean if anyone who thinks it unclean. Or it's, it's unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, legalism can be defined as a strict adherence to the law. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Specifically, in, in relation to faith, a legalist is someone who believes that performance is the way to gain favor with God. I can merit favor with God by the way I live. By the way, if you're one of these people who thinks that way, you, you constantly find yourself jumping on the performance treadmill. <sighs> i got to please God. Please God. i got to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to please God with what I'm doing. You know, jump on that performance treadmill. If you're that way, like I often find myself doing, again, I highly suggest you read, there's a book in the church library by Jerry Bridges called The Discipline of Grace. Read the Discipline of Grace. I love that. I found that so helpful as I struggle with this performance treadmill. One of the things I appreciate about Jerry Bridges is he, he said, you know, it's, there, is, there is nothing that you can do that will cause God to love you any more than he already does. Your bad days are never so bad that, that God is going to love you less than he already does. And your good days are never so good that God is going to love you anymore. That is so freeing. That is so freeing. That doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. Okay? But uh, that, that is helpful, isn't it? So a legalist is somebody who's he, he's on this performance treadmill. Legal, in biblical terms, I should say, in biblical terms, legalism is, is the human attempt to gain salvation. You're trying to prove your spirituality by outward conformity to some list of do's and don'ts. Okay, and that's what Paul is addressing in Galatians. Uh, these Judaizers were trying to please God by, by living out the law. That's the way the Pharisees were. We'll address them in just a moment because they're the classic example of a legalist. And we'll see how Jesus addressed them and how he lived amongst these Pharisees. But the legalist tends to reduce Christianity to a set of rules. To them, it's not a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the set of rules, and they have lots of them. I love the way Gary Friesen describes the legalist. This is kind of the modern-day, it's not necessarily the biblical definition, but often how it's practically worked out. Here's what he said. He said, the legalist is a professing believer with strong convictions who, because of his own pride, takes offense at those who resist his pressure to conform to his point of view, end quote. So that's a good definition of a, practically speaking, of a modern-day legalist. So it's someone who, he just, he wants everybody to conform to his, the way he sees things. And he's, he's very judgmental, he's very proud in his views. So in terms of stumbling blocks, this legalist takes offense when no offense is given. In Romans 14, for example, the legalist would say, hey, nobody should eat meat that's been offered to idols. And so he goes around telling everybody this. He's very judgmental, very obnoxious, very proud about this, and might even question someone's salvation if they eat meat that's been offered to an idol. And so the cause of the offense here is his own pride. It's their own unbelief rather than improper behavior on the part of the other. And so in the process, a legalist is going to become upset. He's not destroyed. Now remember, we addressed the weaker Christian. A weaker Christian is destroyed by someone who does something in a gray area. For example, eating meat offered to idols. Okay, But a legalist is not destroyed. There's a big difference between a weaker Christian and a legalist. He's not destroyed. He's not a weaker brother. He's 
he is strong in his convictions. He's not going to blindly follow some, uh, some contrary example that he doesn't believe. But he, he's also not a stronger brother. The legalist is not a stronger brother. He's, he's not strong in his understanding. He's actually lacking in biblical knowledge. And so the problem is he has not fully grasped Christian liberty. He doesn't understand his freedom in Christ. Like Paul says, hey, I have freedom to eat the meat that's been offered to idols. Paul says, hey, I know it's no different from any of the other meat. But someone who's a legalist would, would not eat the meat offered to idols. Not because it would, would destroy him, just because he just, that's just the way he is. Anyway, there's two things you need to understand about legalism. Okay? This is very important. Listen closely, because we tend to think others are legalistic and we're not. The reality is, we're all legalistic by nature. Every one of us. Okay? You need to understand that. Your, your heart wants to be a legalist. You want to be a little Pharisee, if you will. Okay? Uh, we tend to judge others by our own standards of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. In essence, we think that our sins smell better than other people's sins. Right? We tend to think that we're not as a bad, uh, not a bad of a sinner as other people. Well, I'll, I'll challenge you on that, actually, because uh, a lot of times we're blind. Our heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked, the Bible says. And probably the right perspective is, is the one the Apostle Paul had. He said, hey, I'm the chief of sinners. That's probably reality for us all. And so we have very little tolerance for people then who sin differently than we do. <laughs> we do. I do. I'll admit it. I have very little tolerance for people who sin differently from me. And here's the beauty of God's grace. God's grace in my life helps me to view you and other people differently. And when I, when I understand my own sin, then I can, now, I can look at your sin and say, well, you know what? God saved them. God is saving them. God's doing a work in your life. You might be different. That's okay. It's okay. <laughs> right? In the essentials, we have to have unity. In non-essentials, there can be diversity. That's okay. And in all things, love one another, right? But you need to understand that uh, often sin blinds us. But anyway, so that's just the reality of things. We tend to think of others as legalistic, but we're not. The reality is... We're all legalistic by nature. The other thing you need to know, Jesus uh, uh, touches on this, is that legalism is highly contagious. It's like leaven in a lump of bread dough. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You put a little bit of yeast in some bread dough, and it, it affects the whole thing. It's contagious. It spreads. It can spread like a bad virus through a church, and it destroys churches too. And that's why Paul was so concerned about this. That's why Jesus was so concerned about the legalism of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees are, are the classic example of legalist, of legalism. So let me address the Pharisees. And then we'll see how Jesus addresses them, okay? So you need to understand something about Pharisees. They were a religious group in Jesus' day. It started before his day, actually. They held to the written law of Moses. So the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those laws, the moral laws, the ceremonial laws, and so forth. Okay? But they also held to the oral law, which was basically explaining and applying the written law. And this oral law ended up being passed down from generation to generation, and, and it ended up changing according, according to the current lifestyles. And they tried to set the correct behavior for all the Jews of the land, they were very legalistic and they did in doing that. And so it was concerning the oral traditions, the man-made laws that Jesus condemned the Pharisees. It wasn't the Bible that Jesus condemned, it was the oral traditions, these man-made traditions that they came up with. Well, in contrast to 
the, the two main commands that Jesus gave, which is, of course, love God and love people, the Pharisees developed, oh, hundreds and hundreds of laws. And so by the time Christ came, this religion, this legalism, became something that was producing heart, a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness. It became heartless, cold, and arrogant. And there's at least ten tragic flaws to this that uh, I'll mention from a book called Fan the Flame. It's on the screen here for you. So these are coming from uh, Mr. Stoll. He says, number one, new laws continually need to be invented for new situations. Number two, accountability to God is replaced by accountability to men. Number three, it reduces a person's ability to personally discern. Number four, it creates a judgmental spirit. Five, the Pharisees confused personal preferences with divine law. Six, it produces inconsistencies. Seven, it created a false standard of righteousness. Eight, it became a burden to the Jews. Nine, it was strictly external. Number ten, it was rejected by Christ. So this legalism was rejected by Christ. These man-made traditions, or the oral law, if you will, was rejected by Christ. And Christ, over and over, you know, he, he said, it, it's out of the heart, it's inside you, your inner being is, everything from there is, is, is where you get everything. I, all of that comes the issues of life, what you speak, what you do, what you think. It's coming from the inside. So Christ was concerned about your inside, your inner character, your inner being, the heart, if you will. That's how the Bible describes it. But they, they just made everything external. So they could, they could do things and think, hey, based on what I do, I'm right with God. No, it doesn't work that way, Jesus said. So we'll, we'll look at some, uh, I'll just give you one example. We'll see what the Bible says and then talk about the various man-made traditions that they tacked onto the Bible. Okay, I'll just give you one example. Jesus was constantly fighting the Pharisees over the Sabbath keeping the Sabbath. So let's see what the Bible says. Exodus 20, verse 8. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. So God commanded His people Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't work. Keep it holy. It's, it's to be distinct, unique amongst all the other days of the week. Well, the Pharisees were rightly afraid of breaking that particular commandment. The problem is what they ended up doing is they erected fences, if you will, around the commandment. So if you think of the commandment as something in the middle of a circle... They, they were thinking, okay, I don't want to break that part in the middle, so I'm going to build a fence around God's command so that I don't break this command. They had, they, they had a lot of fences too, by the way. And so these, these fences, if you will, ended up becoming the commandments. And, the, the, and then the original reason ended up being forgotten and was overlooked. Let me give you some examples of what the Pharisees did. So they had these oral laws, these traditions of men, the fences, if you will, that would help them to obey God's law. In regard to the Sabbath, for example, they said no one was to travel more than 3,000 feet or one kilometer from his home, but they had exceptions. <laughs> okay, all right. So did God say don't travel more than a kilometer from your home? No, God didn't say that. He just said, keep it holy, don't work. And so they thought, well, walking can be called work. And by the way, at what point do you stop walking? Well, they, they just made a man-made tradition. We'll say 3,000 feet or one kilometer. Well, they, you know, that's kind of hard to actually live that way. So what they did is they would put food 3,000 feet from their home, or one kilometer, and then they would travel to their food, which was a kilometer from their house, 
and, and then they would go there and eat it. And since they considered anywhere they ate as part of their home, then they could walk another kilometer. You see how, and you, you could just keep walking if you do that, right? You just put food over there, and food way over there, and food way over there, and food way over here, and, and then I can just walk anywhere I want. Well, certain activities like boiling an egg made a, a new location part of their home. I mean, is that in the Bible? No. <laughs> so, you see what they're doing? Man made traditions. Putting a rope across the street between your home and another made the new home part of your home. So just because there's a rope attaching it makes it so I can walk, and that doesn't count against my kilometer, by the way. Many homes were often linked together this way that ended up just creating a huge communal home. And by the way, baths could not be taken on the Sabbath. You say, why? Well, because when you take a bath, you could splash some water out onto the floor, and that would become work because the floor was actually being washed. Just by water going out of the bathtub onto the floor could be considered doing work. You can't do work on the Sabbath. Do you, do you see? And these, these are just a few examples. Okay. They had hundreds and hundreds of examples. And so it's no wonder that Jesus would say this in, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. He said, These Pharisees bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. They made it incredibly difficult. And they were very judgmental, very obnoxious, very proud, very arrogant about this too. So with that in mind, let's just think of some observations of how how did Jesus handle these legalist Pharisees? Not all of them were, but... On the whole, they were. We know a little bit about these men. The Bible does talk about them. Jesus talked to them. Jesus dealt with them. And so Gary Friesen also lists some observations of how did Jesus handle them. Well, number one, Jesus didn't go out of his way to avoid doing things he knew would upset them. Now, some, some people, uh, you know, hey, I don't want to upset the legalists. Did Jesus do that? <laughs> Yeah, he upset the legalists, but he didn't go out of his way to avoid the legalists. You know what I mean? And, and that's why they, you know, these, these Pharisees would often follow him around. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't afraid to go into the temple and teach there and so forth. So that's important to understand. We'll talk about some of these in a moment. But the Pharisees always took the initiative in confrontation. Jesus didn't take the initiative in the confrontations. The Pharisees did. Read your Bible. How often did they come and ask questions? How often were they coming and saying, Hey, hey, Jesus, your disciples did this. Or you did this. Or why is that? You know, constantly coming, accusing, asking questions. So it wasn't Jesus who's, who's taking the initiative. It was them. Another thing to keep in mind is that when questioned or accused by the Pharisees, <clears throat> at least during the early stages of Jesus' ministry, Jesus would answer their questions. He would explain the reasons for his actions. That was during the early stages. And at, at the point where the Pharisees then become, uh, became a little more in your face, if you will, and they started to deter the average person from following Jesus, then Jesus began to rebuke the Pharisees with greater force. He also began to warn his followers about these Pharisees and their legalism. He instructed the multitudes. And remember how he did that? He would use stories. He would would tell these parables. And uh, it was through his teaching of these parables that he was teaching the people, but uh, in a way he's also teaching the Pharisees and warning people about the Pharisees. He also began to warn his followers about these Pharisees. He instructed the the multitudes, about their teaching. He warned people about their teachings. And so the specific instructions Jesus gave his disciples were beware and to leave them alone. Don't follow what they teach. So when Jesus challenged the Pharisees personally, the attack, uh, or I should say the target of Jesus' attack was the content of their doctrine. 
He also attacked their hypocrisy. They were very phony in, in how they practiced their law. But he also attacked the destructive effect of their influence on other people's lives. So that's how Jesus dealt with them. I think he's our model example, isn't he? He should be, anyway. And so when a, and by the way, there were some Pharisees who did come to Jesus with legitimate questions, legitimate seekers. Read John chapter 3. You have a man who was a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. He's a little afraid, probably, which is why he's coming at nighttime to Jesus. But he's asking Jesus uh, various questions, having a religious conversation, if you will, with Jesus. And, and Jesus showed this man love and concern. This, this guy was on a legitimate quest for truth. And so when dealing with someone like that, even though he was a Pharisee, Jesus welcomed this man. He encouraged his questions. He answered his questions. By the way, I do believe Nicodemus did come to faith in Christ. You do see him in the end. He's, he's there burying Jesus, spending a lot of his money, unashamed of Jesus of Nazareth there at the end. So apparently he did come to Christ. So that's how Jesus dealt with these legalists. But how should we deal with the legalist? All right. Of course, we can look at Jesus as a model. But let me just give you a few things that come from the Scriptures. Number one, beware of becoming a legalist. You need to beware of becoming a legalist. In Romans 14, verse 3, it says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So we can become legalists ourselves. All right? Maybe on one issue you're not, but then, then on another issue you could become one. So you do have to be aware of that. But look, uh, look what Jesus said about the Pharisees and what they believed. For example, in Matthew 16, verse 12, it says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus warned them about their doctrine. Look what Jesus says here in, in Luke 12, verse 1. Jesus began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, what's that? Jesus says it's hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy would spread. He was concerned about this. And you say, well, what is leaven? Because Jesus says, beware of the leaven of these Pharisees. What is it? Well, it was a fermenting agent. Uh, it's much like our modern-day yeast. We might put it in bread. If you're making a loaf of bread, you might add yeast. It helps the, the bread to rise, be nice and fluffy. In biblical, biblical times, it was normally added to a batch of bread dough, raw dough, and then by uh, using an unbaked portion of the dough from a previous batch, then they could keep, keep doing that and keep making bread. So in bread making, the leaven was probably a piece of dough that would have been retained for, from their previous baking. Uh, it had fermented. It had turned acidic. And it was then either it was dissolved in water and then kneaded through the flour, or it would they would hide it in the flour and then they would kind of knead it along with the flour. So there was there was various ways they might do this. And so the prohibition here that Jesus is given on leaven was possibly made because fermentation implied corruption. And to the, to the Hebrew, anything that was in a decaying state or a decayed state suggested uncleanness. And that was coming from their law that Moses had given. So leaven was viewed as causing decay. And so leaven became a symbol of evil. It became a symbol of corruption. And Jesus is using this to talk even about our own human nature. So the figurative uses of leaven in the New Testament usually are referring to something that is corrupt, something that is corrupting, it's decaying, unclean. So the application then is this. Don't let something that's small, acidic, don't let something of the, the influence of legalism, if you will, to be 
folded into your life so as to become a fermented, corrupted form of true Christianity. Something that is small can can come into your life. It can corrupt what is true Christianity. And that's why Jesus didn't like the doctrine of the Pharisees. Number two, how, how do we deal with the legalists? Well, when questioned by a legalist, graciously explain the reasons for your convictions. That's what Jesus did. So when the Pharisees would come and question him about all sorts of aspects of the law, he would he would uh, graciously explain his convictions. And here's what the New Testament says. In Colossians 4, verse 6, it says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each one. <clears throat> and then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul addresses uh, people who are, who are like this, and he says, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so they may know the truth. The Scripture is very helpful in helping us know how to address other people and how to live with other people, even a legalist. Number three. Don't give in to his pressure to conform to his absolutes. Okay, Paul didn't give in to legalists. He said, hey, I know I can eat meat offered to idols. You know, I'm not going to be obnoxious about it. I'm not going to be proud about this. I'm, uh, for the weak person, yes, I'm going to strive to help the weak person. But for a legalist, hey, I have Christian liberty. I have freedom in Christ. This person's not going to be destroyed if I eat meat offered to idols. So don't give in to his pressure to conform to his absolutes. Listen to what Colossians 2 verse 8 says. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. That's a legalist. He lives according to the tradition of men. According to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Let me encourage you to read the whole chapter, Colossians 2. Because there Paul's addressing even specific issues like the Sabbath and, and, and is it okay to eat certain things or not. So these were all various issues that people at that time were dealing with. Gray areas, if you will. But Paul also addresses legalists in Galatians. So look what he says here in Galatians 2, verse 3. He says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. Which, of course, the Jews believed you had to be circumcised. That was going all the way back to Father Abraham. And, and so he goes on to say, And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. <laughs> if, if you read on, you know that the Apostle Paul even had to rebuke the Apostle Peter, because Peter had yielded to the legalist. And Paul rebuked him in the Spirit. So notice Paul saying, hey, don't even, don't, do not yield submission to these people. Number four, pursue peace. Yes, don't, don't yield, but do it in a nice way, okay? You can pursue peace. And look, at what, look what Paul says here in Romans 14, verse 19. Romans 14, verse 19, he says, So then let us pursue which makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Look how Paul says it over in chapter 12, verse 18. Chapter 12, verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Does that include a legalist? Absolutely includes a legalist. So the bottom line is this, that you need to understand something. A legalist, if you're not one, remember we're all one at some point, but if you're not one at the moment, the legalist is not your enemy. So don't treat him like one. The problem is sometimes we treat legalists like their enemy. You need to understand, if you're a Christian, 
and the legalist is a Christian, you're on the same team. You're on the same side. You're on the same side, at least if you're Christian. So, and so what do we need to do? We need to keep our eyes on our commanding officer then, don't we? Who's the commanding officer? Jesus Christ. Keep our eyes on him. That's, that's how you build unity. So Jesus is the commanding officer. We need to follow his directions. Keep following his directions. And so if, if this one who is a legalist, who is your fellow soldier, tries to become the commanding officer, what do you do? If a fellow soldier tries to become a commanding officer, what do you do? You don't follow him. You keep looking to your commanding officer. The problem is sometimes we kind of give in to our fellow soldiers, don't we? So we're to graciously explain to this, to this fellow soldier who is a legalist, hey, I'm following Christ. Why don't you follow Christ with me? <laughs> All right? Follow Christ with me. Uh, but w- what we don't want to do is is turn the guns on the one who is also a Christian. Sadly, that's what happens. We turn our guns on him. We don't pursue peace. We pursue war. And, and in the process, you end up becoming a legalist yourself. All right, so let's, uh, let's move on to the third question, which is this. What are the instructions to the legalist? So when you're living like a legalist, what does God say to you? God has some instructions to you, okay? Number one, don't judge other Christians in regards to the gray areas of life, okay? It's okay to talk to Christians about the black and white things, right? You know, by all means, we need to talk to each other. We need to exhort one another to love and good works. But in those gray areas of life, you don't judge the, the Christian in those areas. For example, if you look at Romans 14, verse 13, it says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Not in relation to gray areas. And why is that? Because God says here that judgment belongs to Him. It's His exclusive right, not yours, God. <laughs> We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it says here. So consequently, we must not judge one another. That's God's right, not yours. And it's the unloving attitude of superiority by those who think they're strong Christians and the equally unloving attitude of self-righteousness by the weak Christian by which they judge one another. So one thinks they're superior, one thinks they're, well, (laughs) they are self-righteous, and so there's this war that happens sometimes even in churches. shouldn't be that way, but it sometimes does. And so from Paul's day even to our own, those wrongful judgments have been major causes of sin. They've been causing disrespect, disharmony, and disunity in the church. This is important, because that's not God's desire for the church. His desire is unity, loving one another. And why is this so important? Because it gives the wrong impression of God, doesn't it? It's an attack against His very character, because you'll never see within the Trinity any disharmony and disunity and disrespect. Never see that in the Trinity. So don't judge other Christians in gray areas. Number two, resolve to never put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in another brother's way. Okay, What we're talking about here is causing someone to fall in sin. All right, that, That's what it's referring to there in verse 13, which says, Instead of passing judgment on on another, it says in verse 13, rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's that's a Christian brother, a Christian sister here. All right, so we we could talk about a lot of examples on this, but uh, so you you need to understand, yes, you have freedom in Christ, but I'll, I'll just give you one example. I limit my freedom in Christ to drink alcohol. The Bible says don't get drunk, and so I limit, I, I'm, I'm a teetotaler, if you will, right? I don't, I don't drink alcohol because I'm, I'm concerned about this very area of causing someone to stumble into sin because of me. I don't need to drink alcohol like they did back in Bible times, and so I don't do it for that very reason, for love for other people. 
But what happens sometimes is young Christians can be completely turned off from biblical Christianity because of legalism. And what ends up happening is it ends up driving people from the faith. Christians sometimes get involved in in cults. It's sad how many people go into things like Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth, uh, coming out of Baptist churches, other Protestant churches. They've been driven from from Christ because of legalists. Sometimes Christians get involved in these cults because of just bad experiences with legalists and legalism. Other Christians might join heretical religious groups because they've had bad experience with legalism. And so we, we have to remember that legalism is it can be dangerous. While its goal might claim to be, hey, I am preserving the faith, I am preserving true Christianity, what it's actually doing is destroying the faith and destroying people's confidence in Christ. That should never be. Let's move on to number three. Legalists shouldn't play God. They shouldn't play God, but sometimes they've kind of elevated their opinions, you know, up there, or even higher, if you will, than God's view of truth. So don't play God. It's not our job to be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. You are not the Holy Spirit. So don't act like it. It's not our calling to reduce Christian living to some list of rules that all other Christians in the world have to follow my view. Whoa, no, 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 no. You, it's okay to have strong opinions. You probably all have strong opinions of various things. But when you start trying to press your opinions and, and everybody else has to follow your opinions, then you become a legalist. You're trying to play God. So each believer, the Bible says here in Romans 14, is going to give account to God, not to you. (laughs) You're not giving account to me. I don't give account to you. You give account to God, it says. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God, not you. And this is important when, when when you look at this. Each is going to give account of himself to God. But that's verse 12, Romans 14, verse 12. And, and, and there, I, I think it's probably referring more to a, a daily accountability that we have to God for how we walk, whereas the, the, the previous verses there are referring to the judge's seat of Christ, of course. So I must give account of myself to God. And I need to live in this understanding. I can't expect anyone else to assume this accountability. I, I I can't expect to be accountable for everybody else. Praise God. Wow, that would be a heavy burden to bear, wouldn't it? Imagine you have to be, everybody's accountable to you. Whoa, man, no thank you. I can't make the rules for other people. One of the beauties of the Baptist distinctives is there's something called the priesthood of the believer. Baptists have always believed that priesthood of the believer. You're you're accountable to God. You have Jesus Christ as your high priest. You don't need another human being to do that. So don't play God. Number four, allow yourself to be taught. Allow yourself to be taught. So whenever we get to the position that we think we know everything, we are in big trouble, aren't we? Whoa. So when we think we cannot be wrong in our applications, remember, there's only one interpretation of Scripture, but there can be multiple applications. But when we think we we can't be wrong in our applications of Scripture, we are in big trouble, aren't we? So allow yourself to be taught. And by the way, that doesn't mean, you know, allow your head to be filled with all kinds of new new information. <laughs> that is not what that means. It means you need to be humble. Be humble enough to realize you don't have the corner on the market of Christianity. You don't have some special insight into the Godhead. <laughs> okay, You don't have a view into heaven that other people don't. You don't. So, I don't. So, humility says, I can be wrong. I can be wrong in my application. So you're not perfect in your actions and your understanding, so you can be wrong in your position. 
And that's okay, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. We have to be willing to be taught. We can all learn things from other people. And so what's the root of, of the, the sin here with the legalist? The root sin is then pride. He or she thinks they know better than other people. And they have to go around pressing their opinions on you and everybody else. And they, they think they have some deeper understanding than you and everybody else. And they think they have the right to tell other people what they should or should not do. Why are they doing that? Because they're proud. They see the relationship with other believers as a one-way street. You know what that is like, right? You ever try going down a one-way street when someone else is coming the other way? It doesn't work. And so they, they view it as a one-way street. I can give my opinions and my views, and I can tell you what to do, but how dare you ever try to tell me what to do? You can't do that. That's a one-way street. By the way, I don't, I don't think that way, but uh, that, that's how a, a legalist views things. They view the relationship as this one way. They, I'm, I'm imparting information to you. Follow it. Don't you dare tell me what to do, though, because I'm right. I'm always right. I'm never wrong. <laughs> that's how they tend to be. And in other words, they, they teach you, but they have nothing. Um, you have nothing to teach them. And so the legalist has to remember what the Bible says about this. And I'll end with this. Here's what the Bible says. Very important. James 4, verse 6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, my friend, you should want God's grace. You need God's grace. You can't live without God's grace. The very next breath that you breathe is because of God's grace. When your heart continues beating, it's because of God's grace. Any understanding you have of Scripture is because of God's grace. Any blessings that come to you and His promises are God's grace. You need it. So don't resist. Don't be proud. Don't be obnoxious and arrogant and all the other things that go with this legalism, but instead, give in. Allow yourself to be taught. That's someone who is humble. May God cause us to be humble people and not proud by His grace.